it's this ongoing, as you said, disregard, not recognizing that change has occurred, not recognizing, you know, just kind of doing the same old, same old uh, institutionally. And I think that's that's a part of it. So, you you know, not recognizing that we need to do more about this. Uh, or if somebody comes and says, hey, the women are getting more popular, said, oh, that can't be true. You know, just making, again, these sorts of assumptions. Welcome to the Edge of Sports Podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. This week we are talking to Pamela Grundy and Susan Shackelford, co-authors of one of my favorite all-time sports books, Shattering the Glass, The Remarkable History of Women's Basketball. I also have some choice words. I've got Just Stand Up and Just Sit Down awards and more. But first, let's talk to Pamela Grundy and Susan Shackelford. Historian, author, and activist Pamela Grundy lives in Charlotte, North Carolina, where she pursues a variety of writing, teaching, and museum projects. Her previous books include the award-winning Learning to Win, Sports Education, and Social Change in 20th Century North Carolina. Susan Shackelford has written about sports for the Miami Herald and the Charlotte Observer, and now runs a freelance writing and editing business. I'm thrilled to have them both on the show. Let's do this. First and foremost, I just wanted to ask, Shattering the Glass came out in 2005. Uh, What do you think has changed the most about women's basketball since then? And what do you think has remained the same? Well, that is a real good question. I think in some ways what's changed the most is women's basketball has gotten much more comfortable with the LBTGQ community. you know, that was just a deep, deep anxiety and tension when we did the book. Uh, things were looking up a little bit. But there was just a lot of tension around that. And now they seem to have, you know, come to terms with that, and acknowledging the players and the fans and that kind of thing. And I think that's just been great. Mm. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, they they um, have gone 180 degrees, really. on that issue, Um, embracing LGBTQ plus, um, it's a non-issue. They're marketing to those fans openly. Um, It's been uh, just almost a revolution in how they approach it. And and that's been great. And I, I would also say the quality of the game, just as you might expect, has elevated over time. It just continues to get better and better. And then the other big thing, and I know Pam can speak to this uh, as well, is just uh, the racial justice issue was embraced by the WNBA and then college players. But the WNBA was first among all pro teams or leagues, I should say, and also college uh to to really be out front um and i think that really just speaks to the kind of courage and conviction that these players have really developed you know they're not afraid they're not tiptoeing around afraid that someone's going to criticize them or someone's you know going to take the ball away or something like that i mean they have just this 
this kind of courage that has been an inspiration, I think, to all of sports. And that's very exciting to see as well. Um, I mean, going to the things that haven't changed, of course, I think the game itself, as we saw with the NCAA tournament this uh, Mm -hmm. couple of weeks ago, does not have still the respect that it deserves from many particularly higher-ups in the NCAA in other arenas that women are just not appreciated for what they are. You know, you know that yeah. that connects. Oh, I'm sorry, Sue. Go ahead. No, that that's okay. I I, just, I totally agree with that, and I think social media uh, was able to shine a light on that uh, in a way that um, you know the the voice at one college here and a voice at another college there that might be on a website or might be in an article cannot accomplish because it doesn't reach the broad public. And uh, that was, that was huge. Yeah. You're, you're both uh, telegraphing some of my other questions, which is great. Um, I, I <laughs> wanted to ask um, about the racial justice part. Um, certainly the circles in which I'm in, see the WNBA as trailblazers of the first order. You know, people who are raising the issue of black lives before other leagues, people who changed the Senate race in Georgia. When you look at the mm-hmm. broader sports landscape, does it surprise you that this started in the WNBA? You know, it really doesn't. And I think because often social justice movements start among people who are on the outside. Uh, You know, it's not Mm -hmm. the people who are more comfortable on the inside. And the WNBA, even though they have achieved much more success than, uh, than earlier, I mean, they really still are on the outside. These women who are playing, uh, they have struggled. They have seen challenges, you know, racial, gender, sexuality. I mean, they have all, to get where they are, they have already faced and surmounted a lot of challenges. So it really does not surprise me that they were ready to take this one on too. Mm, did it surprise it, you? It didn't, no, it did not surprise me. Um, and they got some initial pushback. Um, the Minnesota team got out in front of this I wish I could remember the year, but I want to say maybe five years ago. That's right. Um, and they, okay. And then they, they wore t-shirts and um, they, uh, before the game that were Black Lives Matter, I've, if I remember right. And the WNBA was upset about it. Um, and they stopped it, or no, they didn't stop it. The players pushed, I mean, the WNBA tried to, but the players pushed back. And then, you know, it it continued. Uh, but there was, I, there might have been some mitigation of it, but it certainly did not snuff it out. Uh, the players essentially were able to continue to express themselves in some way. But then the WNBA got very comfortable with it. They just... They embraced it. I think the players led the officials in the league um, leadership on this issue, too. Mm. And a- another question about surprises. 
Um, a lot of people were surprised when the social media data came out after the NCAA tournament this year that showed that the women's players were far more popular than the men's players in terms mm -hmm. of social media impressions. Does that surprise you? You know, I guess if you look at the context of the fact that they've been pushing some boundaries for a while and putting themselves out there, I guess it doesn't. But I, I was not aware of it myself until the NC, till those figures came out after the NCAA. And I do think it gives a certain uh, advantage to those women um, and the whole all of women's sports um, to continue to build on that. Mm. Well, and I think to counter these assumptions, I mean, there still is, I think, uh, women's sports fights this assumption that it's not popular, you know, that people don't really want to watch it. I mean, among among certain people. I mean, that's partly why the NCAA, you know, there was this big, the whole brouhaha about payments to players and amount paid for the tournament, whether the women's tournament actually makes money. Uh, and so I think, I think you really, the more this can come out and the more actual data we have that shows the realities of the popularity of women's sports, the more can be done to kind of fight those assumptions that continue to hold it back. Yeah, that's the good about women's basketball that we learned from the NCAA. The, the bad and the ugly, of course, was what you referenced before, uh, like, the way the NCAA underpromotes women's basketball, the way the NCAA disrespects women's basketball in terms of the equipment, mm -hmm. and the weight room, and the preparation. Oh my God! Why? That's terrible. Yeah. Why? How would you answer this question? Why does the NCAA underpromote women's hoops when clearly there's this tremendous market for it? Well, I think that the NCAA is run by the colleges and the universities and their presidents. And I think that Mark Emmert does what they want mm -hmm. and they want the spotlight on men's basketball by and large. And they have sidelined women to a great degree. They're not sharing the spotlight. I mean, and I think, you know, the college presidents could change this. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, you know, I mean, you don't like to do motivations, but, um, you know, if you look, it's just, it's this ongoing, as you said, disregard, not recognizing that change has occurred, not recognizing, you know, just kind of doing the same old, same old. Uh, institutionally, and I think that's that's a part of it. So you you know not recognizing that we need to do more about this, uh, or if somebody comes and says, "Hey, the women are getting more popular," said, "Oh, that can't be true." You know, just making again these sorts of assumptions about that, and uh, and I'm leading to just not spending any time or money on it because mm. the men's just seem mm -hmm. so much more important. You know, I, I no, learned. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Susan. No, no, I was just agreeing with Pam. Um, that's all. Okay. 
you know, one of the things I learned from Shattering the Glass, which was such a revelation, was just how long and extensive the history of women's basketball is. I mean, just about as long as the men have been playing it, women have played it. Um, the difference, of course, was that at the time, you know, the 1890s, women had such few sporting options. Why was there this gravitational pull by women towards this particular sport? Well, that's a that's a that's a really good question, and there are several reasons for this. Uh, you know, this is it's part of the rise of modern sports, modern team sports that are tied to modern industrial society, and everyone wants to get in on this, and the women do too. They want something new, they want something exciting. So when basketball comes along, they're really excited to have something to play, and there's some advantages to basketball. Number one, it's new. So it hasn't been established as a men's sport yet. Another thing is that basketball is seen, it's not football. It's actually for quite a while, uh, main bas male basketball players are seen as sissies. The real men play football and then basketball is this other thing. So that gives a room women can play it without seeing like they're trying to be men at that point. So that helps a lot. And then there are women who work on making the shaping the game so that it will be acceptable to the general public, to college presidents, things like that, so that it won't appear that women are stepping too far beyond the, the boundaries of what's considered appropriate, basically middle-class white womanhood at this point. Mm. Mm -hmm. Now, how does basketball go from being a sport that's centered around middle-class white womenhood to a more popular sport and one played by people of all backgrounds and ethnicities? Oh, you're talking about men's and women's here? Or oh, women's? oh, no, specifically women's. Like the way it was, it was centered on the colleges, on women's schools, but it quickly became a, a popular pastime. Right. How was it to make that transition? You could really link that to the rise of high schools because mm -hmm. that's where, you know, mm -hmm. the 20s is when Americans start going to high school. I mean, in, in large numbers. And then high schools start having sports teams. And then there's boys basketball teams. And then it also comes along at this time in the 20s where young women are doing more things. Again, you've got your flappers, you've got your, you know, the, the roaring 20s. And so again, they're they're eager to do new things. So we tell this wonderful story based in Charlotte of this um, group of young women, and they don't have a team at their high school. And they go to the principal and they say, well, we've got a boys team. We want a girls team too. And uh, then under their picture in the yearbook, I mean, this is right after suffrage has passed. You know, they say, you know, women are making progress in the political arena and in the sporting arena. And so there, it's very linked to the sense of women wanting to do more. And then because now so many more people are going to high school, the game is really available to many more people. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the things I thought when reading Shattering the Glass was, was, was my surprise that it hadn't been written earlier. Um, and I wanted to ask you, what 
what drew you both to taking this subject on? You want to tell the story, Susan? Well, it, it's uh, it's both uh, a professional and a personal story. Um, I had uh, met Pam by phone on a, on another project she was working on, and had a, a pleasant experience. Then I um, I and my my spouse moved, and um, as I was preparing to move, I saw a book that she had sent me. And I looked at the address that I had written on a sticky note, and the address for Pam was one number different on the street I was moving to. Wow. So she moved. Um, go ahead, Pam. Oh, I was going to say she moved right across the street. And I'm like, it's Susan right across the street. Wow. <laughs> so I've been here. Go ahead, Pam. No, no, you go, you go. No, I was just going to say, I had been here maybe six months or a few months. I'm not sure. And Pam said, have you ever, well, have you ever thought about wanting to to write uh, or, is that, no, let me back up. And, and maybe Pam can tell it better. But the way I remember it is she said, I have been thinking about writing a, a history of women's basketball, but I would like to have a co-author because there are aspects of the game, particularly the modern era since Title IX, that um, I'm, I haven't followed as closely as the historical part before then, and uh, have you, would you be interested in this? And I was just... Um, excited from the get-go and um, so excited in fact I said well I think I need to sleep on this at, at least <laughs> so um, that's what I remember no yeah it was very much like that I teach sports I mean women's sports you know we forget now but you know 10-15 years ago there wasn't all that much written you know it, it's a growing field in teaching sports history, there was no good book on mm. women's sports that you could assign to a sports class, to a class, like an undergraduate class. You know, no good book that that was a lot about women's sports history. There were some, you know, monographs like Susan Kahn's Coming on Strong, which is a great book, but is a little advanced for undergraduates uh, and other things. So there wasn't anything. And I kept saying, we need a book. And it should be a history of women's basketball because you can tell it all in women's basketball. And for years, I tried to get people to write it. I would say, oh, you know, you should write this book on women's basketball. Would it be great if you write a book? Because I didn't want to do it because, again, I didn't know the more recent stuff that well. And I was doing other things. And then when Susan moved across the street, one day it hit me. Susan and I could write that book together. So I went and asked her and she said yes. And. There it is. Wow. Now, you've been so generous with your time, but I, I've always wanted to ask you both, who are the players that have inspired you that first captured your imagination when looking at the basketball court? And this could be historic or present day. Who are the ones that, that captured your, your sports imagination when it comes to women's basketball? Hmm. Wow. Well, I, 
Well, let's go ahead, Pam. So, I'll let you jump in. Okay. I mean, there's so many of them. I mean, the thing that's so cool about women's basketball is everyone who played it was doing something kind of daring and new. And so when you talk to them about their experiences, that just shines through. And it's just so, you know, the, the hard parts, of, there are hard parts of the narrative as well, but, you know, they're doing something, and that is great. For me, I'd say the one I'm drawn to most is Oral Washington, who mm -hmm. was the great, the first black female athletic star, essentially, uh, played tennis and basketball in Philadelphia. She was born about the turn of the century in uh, in rural Virginia, migrated to Philadelphia as part of the Great Migration and became this extraordinary star, but then essentially got forgotten um, because she passed away in 1971 before people became interested in in uh, you know segregation era black sports. You know, it was all when she when she passed away. It was still all Jackie Robinson, Althea Gibson. You know, the the pioneers of integration. And it's only in the seventies that people start looking back at the Negro leagues, start back in on this on this era. But she, she's not there to interview because she's passed away, and. So she really got lost. In fact, we have this whole thing. Everybody gets got her name wrong for years and years and years. They called her Aura May Washington, which was not her name, which she never used. But somehow that just got caught up in the public discussion and no one had any idea it was wrong. And she's just amazing to me. She made herself. She was the first black female athletic star. She lived her life as she wanted to live her life. She didn't like dress up and pretend to be cute or anything like that. She was a tough tennis player, tough basketball player, and she just went for it. And I, it's been a great joy learning more about her. Wow. It sounds like a movie. Yeah. Also, yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, definitely. I, you know, you know, Dave, what, for me, um, I didn't have the benefit till, till I worked with Pam to know a lot of these, uh, to be inspired, you know, as a younger person by some of these these folks that really, really uh, made a mark in the game. Um, I knew a little bit about some like Althea Gibson and Babe Diedrichson, Zaharias, who were outstanding all-round athletes. But when I was in high school, I remember, uh, and, and a little bit after that in college, um, I was covering women's basketball um, at at my college at Chapel Hill, and I remember really following uh, in the late 70s, pushing forward a little more, Nancy Lieberman. I mean, mm -hmm. I was just wowed at her ability um, and, and how far she could potentially go if we weren't in you know, the kind of culture we're in, which limited opportunities. Nancy made the best of it. I mean, she has done just about everything, including coaching men on the pro level. But I just remember being wowed by her talent and working with Ann Donovan, uh, a great center, uh, when they were at Old Dominion and the championships they won. Um, they were They were inspiring to me. Wow. And uh, something I ask every guest on this show 
is I'm curious about what kind of music inspires you, uh, especially when you're working on a big project such as this. Oh, that's interesting. Um, I love uh, classical, like like Bach, and that that era of music. I find it it has the the intonation and the power that I'm looking for. Um, and I also like jazz. Um, mm. So either one of those would probably be my top. Well, when I got, I mean, I, I often listen to music that's a little bit related to what I'm doing, but the thing that really always gets me is the civil rights freedom songs. Mm. I love to play those. Mm -hmm. I've always played those when I've done civil rights stuff, but it's, they've got a power and an immediacy and a, uh, and, and a rhythm that helps me write. And I, mm -hmm. I really love those. Well, what, a, what, what great answers to that question from both of you. Thank you so much. Um, is there anything else I'm missing that, that you would like to add before we, we call it anything that I'm that I'm not asking. Well, we'll give you a, a sneak peek. We are planning an updated edition that brings it up to the present because 2005 was a long time ago. Yeah. So, <laughs> so we're going to be we're going to be working on that. Fantastic. It, it really is one of the great sports books I've ever had the the privilege to read. Um thank you so much thank for your Thank you, Dave. Oh, it's so good. Um, I recommend it to everybody. Uh, th thank you so much for your work, and th thanks for joining me to have this conversation. Well, thanks for everything. You're welcome, you, Dave. You keep yeah. you keep the sports world honest. Well, you do your best anyway. <laughs> then I clearly need to be doing a better job. But thank you. <laughs> thank you very thanks, much, Dave. Have a All great right. day. You okay, too. You too. Take care. Bye bye. Take care. Bye. Bye. We'll be back right after this, but first a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. Okay, look, the need for independent journalism has never been more important, and The Nation brings it each and every week like they've been doing since 1865. I'm serious. This is what you gotta read. It's The Nation Magazine. Go to thenation.com slash subscribe, and please never forget that when you support The Nation magazine, you are also supporting the continued existence of this podcast. So please subscribe. Go to www.thenation.com slash subscribe. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. And now I've got some choice words about a very blech, subject, Caitlyn Jenner. Okay, look, in the 1970s, Phyllis Schlafly built herself a massive public platform by being the woman who opposed the women's liberation movement. She was feted and funded by the male-dominated right-wing industrial complex as a way to attack women's demands for legal and cultural equality. Today, there's an effort to revive the Phyllis Schlafly playbook by Kardashian parasite and transgender Republican Caitlyn Jenner. The 1976 Olympian is running for governor of California and using her outsized platform to jump into the GOP culture war du jour, the efforts to ban trans kids, particularly trans girls, from playing youth sports. Jenner told a TMZ reporter 
that it's, quote, a question of fairness. She went on to say, that's why I oppose biological boys who are trans competing in girls' sports in school. It just isn't fair, and we have to protect girls' sports. This is repugnant. Youth sports provide hope and acceptance. For trans youth, and by the way, trans girls are girls, they're often very alienated or even outcast from family and peers. It is potentially a rare safe space. As R.K. Russell, who I interviewed last week on this show, wrote for The Guardian, to use sports as a way to distract from the hate being perpetuated in our society today is heinous. But also to use sports to perpetuate hate is the exact opposite of what sports is all about. That love and communion that is possible to find. That's exactly what Caitlyn Jenner is doing. Using the games we love as an instrument of hate, hoping she can schlafly her way into the governor's mansion. The terrible irony here is that California is one of just a handful of states that offers full equality and access to sports for trans youth. It has had this law in the book since 2014, and there's no record to show that including trans girls has meant denying opportunities to anyone else. As with efforts in recent years to raise hysteria about trans people using the bathroom, this culture war fight against trans participation in school sports is an attempt to demonize some of the most powerless people in our society. I reached out to celebrated trans triathlete Chris Mosier for his thoughts about Caitlyn Jenner's pronouncements. At the end of the day, he says, Caitlyn's opinion means nothing to me. It's clear this is a political play in her run for governor, and it's a very predictable 180 from her previous quotes about supporting trans kids. She was never about the community. She's about her privilege and her own access. I also spoke with ACLU attorney Chase Strangio about the wave of anti-trans bills making their way through state legislatures. He sees Jenner's remarks as helping that process along. He said, it is extremely hurtful to hear a wealthy and powerful trans woman not only turn her back on trans youth, but demean and undermine the entire trans community with remarks that display a desire to put craven politics ahead of people's lives. That said, Ms. Jenner is not a doctor, a scientist, or a lawyer, and she clearly does not understand either the scientific or medical realities that make clear that trans women and girls pose no threat to cis women and girls. Now, one critical difference between Schlafly and Jenner is that the former Olympian, no matter how craven her comments, is unlikely to find acceptance as a trans woman from the Republicans whose favor she seeks. But the damage is done. As Mosier said to me, whether these bills pass or not, the words of the lawmakers, the right-wing media, and the misinformed comments by Caitlin all contribute to the dangerous environment that trans people who do not have as much privilege as she has have to navigate each day. We'll be back right after this with a quick word from Edge of Sports. Hey, everybody out there. This is Dave Zirin with the Edge of Sports podcast. People got to know that we put this podcast on with elbow grease and, and bubble gum on a weekly basis. And we're proud of the work that we do. We love it. But we can't do it without support from you, the listener. So please go to patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod and support the podcast. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. Any little bit you might give to support the podcast actually makes a huge difference to the work we're trying to do. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. We appreciate you. Make no mistake about it. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast.
Now it's time for the part of the show we call Just Stand Up and Just Sit Your Ass Down. The Just Stand Up Award this week Stand up. goes to the German women's gymnastics team. They wore full body unitards for their last competition. And most women typically wear leotards that show the entire leg, of course. Male gymnasts wear slightly loose shorts or full length leg coverings. But for women, it's always been those uh, leotards that go way up the leg. Now, unitards are technically permitted, the full body ones, but usually are worn for religious reasons. But for these German gymnasts, it was a statement, quote, against sexualization in gymnastics. Elizabeth Seitz, one of the gymnasts, said it was to, quote, set an example to all gymnasts who may feel uncomfortable or even sexualized in normal suits. Because in our opinion, every gymnast should be able to decide in which type of suit she feels most comfortable and then do gymnastics. In the words of Elizabeth Daniels speaking to NPR, and Elizabeth Daniels is a professor at the University of Colorado, this display was, quote, one of the first examples we have of athletes making a statement that they would prefer to perform their sport in clothing that they are comfortable in rather than clothing that might be geared towards an audience. So the Just Stand Up Award goes to the German women's gymnastics team, and especially when you think about the history of just sick sexualization and assault in gymnastics, it's actually an incredibly strong moment for them to step up and do this. And shout out to Ayman Fidel for suggesting this. Also got to give a Just Stand Up Award. Stand up! A second one to the sports unions. We might talk about this more in the weeks to come, but the football, baseball, hockey, and basketball players who they have seen their unions come together to support the PRO Act, which is a bill in Congress to make it easier for laborers to organize and for unions to not be the subject of vicious counterattacks by employers. So Just Stand Up Award to the sports unions too, but I think we're going to talk about that more on next week's show. The Just Sit Your Ass Down Award. Sit your ass down. Sit your ass down. I could make it just go to Caitlyn Jenner. Let's give it to James Dolan. The New York Knicks are doing great. James Dolan owns the team. And it's almost like he's restless because he just fired basically the entire front office of the other team he owns, the New York Rangers. And he did so even though they've been engineering a very slow and steady and very positive rebuild of an organization that's been just in the shitter for the last several years. And so for James Dolan to do such a thing, um, I mean, it just shows that this is a guy who can't get out of his own way. James Dolan, New York loves the Knicks. They love the Rangers. You not so much. Sit your ass down. Sit your ass down. Well, that's all the time we have for this week's show. Thank you so much to Pamela Grundy and Susan Shackelford for being my guests. Everybody should read Shattering the Glass, The Remarkable History of Women's Basketball. It's amazing. Folks as well uh, should um, check out all the work that they do going forward. I think they're going to do an updated version of the book, and I'm very excited about that. Thank you so much to my producer, David Tigaboo. Thank you so much to everybody out there listening. If you like the show, leave a rating, uh, tell a friend, write a little comment. All that stuff matters a great deal. For everybody out there, please stay frosty. We are out of here. Peace.